All right, well, good morning again, and let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, and you can find Luke 18 on page 887. So on that first Palm Sunday, as we now know it, Jesus arrived in the city of Jerusalem, and he came from the east. He came from a town and set out from a town called Jericho. Uh, Jericho is tucked in a valley. It is a town that is below sea level on the edge of the Judean wilderness. For those of you who might be visual learners, we have a slide of where Jericho is, the right side of the screen. And as you can see, from Jericho, the elevation changes, the terrain changes. Those of you who have been to Israel know the vast and quick change in both elevation and terrain. And the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a climb of 3,000 feet all right, that's a good little hike. Those of you who are hikers, you know, 3,000 feet, it's not, un, you know, it's, not, it, it, it's an easy family hike. But when you're changing elevation over terrain like that, and you can see it's dips and valleys along the way, eventually leading up to Jerusalem, the city where the Jewish temple was located. And so the Jewish people often talked about um, going up to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem, particularly for the Passover, which was the largest and most celebrated annual feast amongst the Jewish people, as they remembered how God saved them from Egypt 2,000 years earlier. And um, for those of you who might not be familiar with Passover, uh, the reason why they call it that and still call it today is that as God pronounced judgment on Egypt, he told Moses in order uh, for the Israelite families to, uh, to be saved from judgment, uh, they are to sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and smear it on the blood on the door of their houses so that God would pass over those homes that the blood of the lamb was covering and spared them from judgment. And as we know, when Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday for Passover week, he would do so with a lot of fanfare. Uh, from a worldly perspective, Jesus was at the peak of his powers at this point. He had been doing ministry for about three years, traveling around, teaching and healing and challenging the status quo and the popularity, you could say, rose. And so the crowds have swelled at this point, and on the road in, they are referring to him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the scripture says that as they did, they laid palms on the ground. And so from anyone who was looking on at this point, whether you liked Jesus or, or whether you hated him, whether you supported him or felt threatened by him, you could plainly see he's the guy right now. Like he's the most important person in the most important city during the most important week for the Jewish people. Jesus in Jerusalem at Passover. And of course, Jesus knew how dramatically that would change in just a few short days. But he also knew that the way that the world values wealth and power is not the way God views wealth and power. And so there's a reversal coming. And it's a reversal that would soon be on display for all to see but on the journey to the city of Jerusalem, just about a day before he reached Jericho, he was stopped in the road, and he was stopped by a man who had it all from a worldly perspective. And this man had a question, arguably the most important question anyone could ask. And this question led to an encounter that I think his disciples didn't fully understand at the time. But one day, they'd look back, and they'd go, he was trying to tell us the whole time. 
And so that's where we're going to go this morning is we're in week three of our series leading to uh, Easter called A New Story. Uh, week one, we saw the story of the bleeding woman who in desperate faith, she found Jesus. Do you remember? And then last week, week two, Matt Smith looked at the story of Matthew who was called out by Jesus despite Matthew not looking for Jesus at all. And he answered that call. And by the way, just thank you to Matt for bringing the word last week. I know many of you know this because you told me last week, like in real time, texting me. Uh, man, um, and I know he doesn't even want the attention. I won't even tell you where he's sitting, all right? But he's in the room right now. And Matt brought you all to Jesus last week. And if you were here, you know Matt said, hey, follow me. We're going to see Jesus. And if you were not here last week, man, put it on your list for this week. Go see Jesus with Matt this week and listen to that sermon. But this morning, week three, we will see not everyone's going to follow Jesus. Um, the Bible doesn't just include stories of transformation, but it also includes stories of rejection. And these stories, as you'll find, they might not be as inspiring. They're certainly not as fun to preach, but they're no less important for us to see. Because at times the Bible will inspire you, and at other times the Bible will sober you. There's times where you will rejoice, and then there's times where you are called to reflect, and God will use it all to save his people and to grow us to, more, to look more like him. And so this passage this morning, it is a timeless test of the heart. And with that, we're going to go to Luke 18. We're going to pick it up at verse 18, and we're going to read to verse 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Not everyone will accept the call to the new story that Jesus offers them. In fact, we do know from Jesus himself that most will actually reject it. And for those who do choose to enter into a new story, and many of us can resonate with this, that we will still struggle to take a deeper step into a relationship and intimacy with him where we believe, but we know that something is holding us back to going deeper. And we want to go deeper, but we're being held back from going deeper. And so this encounter doesn't tell us every reason why somebody does not accept that new story or why somebody rejects to go into a deeper story with Jesus, but it does reveal three things. It's not everything, but this passage gives us three things 
that may keep us from fully living within God's story for our lives. These are three points of rejection. Again, not inspiring, but I think important. Starting with number one, the illusion of control. The illusion of control. Uh, The man who approaches Jesus with this question is often referred to as the rich young ruler. And the reason why we refer to him as that is the collection of evidence from the three gospel writers who tell the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of this man. All three of them tell us he was rich. Mark tells us he was young, and Luke tells us he was a ruler. Put it all together, we got the rich young ruler. And he asks an important question. Quite possibly the question of our existence. It's the kind of question where somebody hears it that they kind of listen. Even if they didn't ask it, they want to know the answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that everyone asks in some form or another. You've asked it. If you have kids, they've asked it. Uh, The person you met last week and are just getting to know, they've asked it. The person you were driving behind this morning and got frustrated because they were going too slow for your liking, they've asked it. Everyone's asked it. And they're grouped together with other questions like, is there a God? Is there something beyond all of this? If so, what is after this? And do I have anything to say or do I have a say in what comes for me after this? And one of the points that we're trying to get across in this series is that one's answer to those kinds of questions is what most deeply shapes who you are. It's how you see the world. It's your story. It's what you choose to do or not do each day seen through the lens of the story you are living in. And that story can be defined by, in part, your answer to those questions. And so the question is good, but as is often the case, the way he asks the question exposes himself. It exposes his illusion of control. Uh, First, he refers to Jesus as the good teacher. A good teacher, the Greek title there does not indicate someone who teaches good things, but rather a perfectly good person who teaches. Do you catch it? He's not saying, hey, person who can teach good things, we can all do that, but perfectly good person who teaches. I have a question. And that is why Jesus jumps on that right away. His first response to that is, why do you call me good? He's not trying to trick him. Jesus is not trying to light him up in front of his friends. He's not trying to manipulate him. He is sensing, oh, you think people can be good. You think people can be perfectly good. Don't you know, brother, that no one has that title except God alone? And you can sense the irony dripping in this encounter already. And so the man is asking, perfectly good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the way he asks the question that exposes an illusion of control. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, I'm not knocking him for the question. It's the right question. It's the question I've asked and that you've asked. But he's approaching it from the wrong direction, assuming he's the controller of his own destiny. And so Jesus answers. He goes along with him, and eventually he knows where he's bringing this conversation. But he goes along with him at first. He says, uh, you, you know the commandments, smart guy. And then Jesus proceeds to list the second half of the Ten Commandments, which is important, and we'll come back to that. The Ten Commandments, the, the, the list of Ten Commands that were first given to Moses by God to then give to Israel after they were saved from Egypt. 
And these are all the commandments, the, the, the second table of the law, they're called, uh, that are externally done. They are behaviorally driven. Do not commit adultery. Uh, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your parents. What must you do to get to heaven? This is what you must do. And in order to be good, you got to do it perfectly. So he answers the question. Now at this point, does the man say, Jesus, I've, I've tried to do it perfectly, but I, I can't. I've, I've fallen short. I, I got all this money. I got all this success, all this fanfare, but deep down I know I'm not good enough. I've tried to do that, Jesus. I can't. I, everyone thinks I have it all, but there's something missing. I know there's something missing. I'm still searching. Is that what he says? No. He goes the opposite way. Jesus says this to him, and he goes, great. I've kept all of those since I've been a kid. Like, is that all I need to do? Just the Ten Commandments. Wonderful. I'm in. At this point, it is again revealed, exposed, that he does not need Jesus to be good. He has it under control. I have my life under control. And it's here where I want to pause and just have us observe and recognize that there is both a worldly way and a religious way to live without a need for Jesus. Let me say that again. There is a worldly way and a religious way to functionally live your life without a need for Jesus. The worldly way says, I don't need religion to be good. I know who I am. I am, I am a good person at heart. I'm kind and respectful to others. I, I raise my kids to do the same. I, I, I give a hand where I can and, and, and give them my time. Uh, I, I give money where I'm able, where I can help people. I'm, I'm waking up each day. I'm trying my best. And I care about character. I care about integrity at work. And I care about teaching the next generation the same. I'm good. Not perfect, but I'm good. I'm under control. The religious way does the exact same thing, but it covers it more dangerously with religious activity. Uh, I was baptized at a young age. I can show you the certificate I have in my box in my basement. I go to church regularly. Um, I give a portion of my income. And man, in this area, that's not easy to do, and I do it. I pray for others. I even dress a little nicer around Easter. Nothing against it, all right? I'll probably be dressed a little nicer next week, all right? That's not legalism, but I, you know, but so I'm not against it, but the, the, this is the kind of things that we'll say that I have done these things. I'm religiously good, but you're saying the same thing as the worldly way. You're saying I'm under control. Whether from a worldly perspective or religious perspective, it might seem different at the surface, but at the core, it's the same. And here's how you know. The sentences all started with I are you good enough? What must you do to inherit eternal life if your answer in your own mind and heart or whether you say it to somebody else starts with I? Well, I, and then I. When we are pinned under the illusion of control, our senses start with I. A Christian author from last century named T.S. Eliot, he wrote a Christian play once. It was written in 1952. The play was called The Cocktail Party. And the main character of the cocktail party is a man named Henry, who is a psychiatrist. And he's got a line in the play. It says this, quote, People are absorbed in an endless struggle to think well of themselves. 
People are absorbed in an endless struggle to think well of themselves. I'm good. I'm under control. It's the first thing that keeps us from leaning deeply into God's story. Number two, the second thing that keeps us from fully living in God's story is misplaced love. So first, there is illusion of control. Now there is misplaced love. Um, Jesus, at this point, he could have responded in a bunch of different ways. Um, first, he could have said, it is preposterous that someone could claim that they have kept the law perfectly. Right? If I'm standing next to Jesus, I'm like, Jesus, light this dude up. Like, he messed up this morning. Like, and you know what he did. And then yesterday and the day before, like, he's saying, I've kept all the commands from my youth. Like, Jesus could have right there just put him to bed. But he doesn't. Because the problem is not first his behavior, but his heart. So Jesus is not worrying about his behavior. He says, I'll leave that there for now. He wants to go after his heart. In Mark's account of this story, Mark writes at this point that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him. He's not annoyed by him like we might be. He's not offended by him. He is compassionate towards the rich young ruler. He looked at him and he loved him. And he says, it's one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus knows that this young man's mind is wrapped up in what he can do. So Jesus exposes the state of his heart by pressing his finger on the one things, one thing he knows he won't do. And rather than just calling that out, he, he goes to the heart level. And I want to be clear here uh, for us all to see and be on the same page. Jesus is not saying that selling all you have and giving to the poor is what gets you eternal life. But rather, he is moving from the second half of the Ten Commandments to the first half, from the external behavior-driven to the internal worship-driven commandments, starting with number one. What's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods besides me. And so by saying this, what Jesus is doing is that he's giving the man an x-ray of his own heart. Your true God is your wealth. The problem is not that you're wealthy, but the problem is your misplaced love for that wealth. Your problem is not that you're wealthy. Your problem is for your misplaced love towards that wealth over and above God, which functionally means your wealth is your God, even if you would never say that. If you know, if you're smart enough to know, I should never say that. Functionally, that's what the x-ray of your heart is showing. Understand this, Grace Church, the true God of our lives, whatever we call it, is that which we love most. If you want to know what your God is, what is it that you love most? You, you have a capacity to love a lot of things. God gave you the capacity to love a lot of things in this world, but what do you love most? It's that thing or that person that everything else will be sacrificed for when push comes to shove. So by telling him, sell everything you have and give it away and then follow me, Jesus is not, again, embarrassing him. He is inviting him. Do you see the invitation? He's inviting him to be willing to surrender the God of his old story, being wealth, to follow the one real true God in a new story. He's giving him an invitation to choose a new story. 
But the only way he will do that, the only way you have done that, or the only way you will do that if you have not already, is if you first see Jesus as one to be treasured above all else. And that's not first about what you do. It's about what you love. Salvation is not human achievement. There's nothing you can do to come in right standing before the Lord. And before you follow Jesus, you first need to see that you cannot achieve salvation, achieve eternal life on your own. On your own. And once you are given the gift of grace to see that, once you can see that with the eyes of your heart, that God grants you the grace to see it, it leads you on a path to trust in him. And this is what it means to live free. We sang it this morning, to live free. I want to be free. I want to be set free from the blinders and from the bondage of being held by something. So the invitation goes out to the rich young ruler. And the moment he heard this, in verse 23, he's given the invitation to leave it all and be free in Jesus. And tragically, he knows he can't do it. Jesus pressed his finger on the one thing he knows he will not give up. This is a story of rejection. And he walks away sad because in his eyes he can't do what needs to be done. And so this is where it is revealed. Up to this point, the man thought he had great wealth. He woke up that morning and thought he had great wealth. But he went to bed that night realizing great wealth had him. And it owned him. And it controlled him. And so upon receiving an invite to live in a new story and counting the cost, literally, he chose to remain in his old story. I hope we know here at this point that the main point here is not about wealth and the main point's not about money. Listen to me. It's a point. It's a point because Luke in particular writes a lot about money and generosity and God coming to deliver the poor and oppressed more than any other gospel writer. It's a point because 15% of everything Jesus teaches in the gospels has to do with money. Because where our treasure is, he says, there our hearts will be also. Oh, it's a point. And so we should ask God for help and courage to be honest with ourselves when it does come to money and generosity and stewarding our money to build his kingdom and not waste our money to build ours. It's a point, because it's worth asking, do I own my money? Or does my money own me? But it's not the main point, not here at least. The main point is here, and I'll ask it with a question. Is there anything standing in the way between you and God today? Is there anything standing in the way between you and God today that is causing you to not accept the invitation into his story or to grow deeper into your story with Jesus? Is there anything standing in the way? It might be money. It might be status and reputation and your public perception of your reputation. It might be a job. It might be a relationship, an addiction, a misplaced sexual desire that you've tried to overcome over and over on your own, but you can't. 
It might be a hatred towards a certain people group or a certain segment of our society that you just, it just wells within you, the anger towards them. What might be standing in the way is your own illusion of control as seeing yourself as good and not needing it. Is there anything standing in the way between you and God today? Know that God is inviting you into a new story. And the invitation is right before you to see him as a greater treasure than anything that is holding you captive, to trust in him and follow him. He finished that statement with, come, follow me. Which leads to number three, the third and final reason why we might resist going deeper into a new story is a flawed perspective. A flawed perspective. Hang with me here. Jesus is not emotionless about this rejection. Jesus is not happy that this man is walking away sad. You see what I did to that guy? He thought he was all that, and now he's walking away. Not what Jesus is thinking. That's what I would think in my own fallen nature. But remember, he had compassion on this man, and so he walks away. I see Jesus lamenting this. The invitation was given, and he rejected it. And so he's vulnerable in his pain at this point. He's in front of whatever crowds around him, certainly his disciples around him. And he turns and he says to them, not only to lament his pain, but to teach his disciples that this passage is not just so that the blind might see and be saved, but it's also that those who are following him would be insured. They don't lose perspective. In this world, even when you're following Jesus, we are prone to lose perspective, to build up on a flawed perspective. And he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So those who are following him are processing that statement in real time. And they just saw what happened. They saw this man who had it all. He probably had a reputation. They probably knew of him before he even came up to him. And he was just turned away from Jesus. And then Jesus says something crazy that is physically impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And their perspective is flawed. Because what they say is, Jesus, what are we doing then? Like, who can be saved then if that guy can't? Uh, In Jewish circles of the day, their interpretation of the Old Testament was that wealth was a sign of God's favor. So if you were wealthy, that is God's blessing on you. And if you were poor, that is God's curse upon you. And as I say that, and I say that was the mentality of that day, many of you know that mentality has traveled through time. That's a perspective that we can still have, that we can find ourselves slipping into, even when you're genuinely following Jesus, is that you're going through a season of your life, and you're like, man, things are going really well for me. Like, from a worldly perspective, I'm, I'm kind of getting all the things I'm praying for. God must be really happy with me, because look at all I have to show for it. But then on the flip side, if things are not going well for me, and we go through one of those seasons where we're like, wait, now, now this is happening? Like, that wasn't enough, and now, and now this is being piled on, and then that mentality is like, God must be upset with me, because I am generally trying to follow him, but I must be doing something wrong. And that mentality, which gets just propped up by the prosperity gospel, by plenty who want to teach it, are very willing to put the shame on you. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. If you're not, that's a you problem. It's a crippling lie, a crippling perspective that the enemy wants you pinned under. If this rich young ruler can't be saved, well, what chance do any of us have? 
He has it all. He's wealthy and can afford anything his heart desires. Anything he sees, not too rich for him. He's young, so he has a full life ahead of him to enjoy this wealth. And he is a ruler. Not exactly sure what role he had. Luke doesn't tell us, but it's likely it was not a ruler uh, in Jewish circles like the synagogues. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Jairus, who was very careful to say he was a ruler in the synagogue. This is just a ruler in general, which implies it's probably a magistrate of some sort, some rule and authority within Roman Empire circles. So think about this. He's Jewish. He knows the law. He's rich. He's young. And he's running in power circles that give him status to everyone. He had it all. Every single year, uh, Forbes magazine, now it's probably just Forbes, the online organization, puts out a list. You guys know the list. 30 under 30. 30 of the most influential people under the age of 30 in the United States. Every year they got the list. Sadly, my window to make the list has closed. Some of you in here, you still got a chance, all right? 2024, go get on the list. Included on the list this year are athletes like Joel Embiid, celebrities like Holly Bieber. Combined net worth of these 30, $5 billion. Altogether, they have 613 million followers on social media, 30 under 30. Here's what that list screams and markets to anyone who will listen. These people are somebodies. They are at the peak of their powers. They're young, they're rich, and they're powerful. Even if you're old and rich and powerful, which most old powerful people, or no, most rich powerful people are older, they know they're up on father time. They don't have the runway that these young people do. So millions and millions of people under 30 scroll through this list each year and they go, man, wouldn't that be something to be on this list? Millions and millions of people over the age of 30 scroll through the list each year and go, man, wouldn't that have been something if I was on that list? If first century Jewish circles had a 30 under 30, something tells me this man would be on it and maybe at the top. And Jesus just said to the man who had it all, with compassion and hurt in his heart, you're going to end up with nothing. You will not inherit eternal life. Which is why the disciples look at him and go, who can do it? If not him, who? And then Peter, because again, it's just always Peter. Like, it just has to be Peter. Peter's going to speak up. And he's going to say, "Uh, Jesus, we... We, we, we left our homes to follow you. You know, you know what I think the tone there is like, and I admit I'm projecting this on Peter. Like, Jesus, what the heck? Like, we followed you. But if, but if that's the case, that if, if that guy can't get eternal life, what are we doing here? It's a flawed perspective that will keep them from growing from growing deeper with Jesus, from living their lives with purpose and mission to make his name known. To which Jesus, again, so so compassionate in his kindness, says, yeah, there is a cost to following me. Everyone will give up something. Everyone. 
but no one who follows me will lose out in the end. Because those who follow me are investing in the kingdom of God, and it will last forever. Those who reject me are investing in the kingdom of this world, and hear me, it's a bad investment. That kingdom is about to go belly up. There's a reversal coming. And so I say to you, I say to myself at this point, the cost of following Jesus, it might be high in this world. For some of you, it might be really high. But the cost of not following Jesus will be way higher. It will be way higher in eternity. So you might ask, well, at this point, this is what I thought when I was studying the passage. You know, Jesus never answered the question. Like, what's the answer to the original question? How does one have eternal life? Well, in John chapter 17, verse 3, it's the night before he'd go to the cross. Jesus says this in his prayer to the Father, John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life. Here's the clarity for you. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent This is why we talk about this phrase so much. The key to eternal life is knowing God. Not knowing of him. Many of you know of him, and you have since a child. It's not knowing about him and being able to answer some questions about what he did, but knowing him. It's all over Scripture. Some of you might be asking, like, okay, but what's it mean to know God? I still feel like I'm not really clear on that. What's it mean to know him? That when you repent of your sin and you put your faith in him and you know him, like, can can you flesh that out for me? I can't, but J.I. Packer can. All right, so here's a quote on the screen. I want you to read it slowly with me. If you want to take a picture of it, because I think this is the key to knowing God. Knowing God consists of three components, which must be taken together and seen as inseparable aspects of a greater whole. One, grasping who God is. Two, applying to ourselves what God is and what God gives. And three, adoring God as the one who gives these gifts. Grasping, applying, and adoring. Do you know him? When we have this perspective, watch what God will do in and through us to turn and make his name known. I want to finish with this. Jesus has this encounter with this man just on the edge of Jericho, just before the trek up to Jerusalem. Hard sayings, beautiful truth. And then, as we stand at the start of Holy Week, look at what Jesus says immediately after this in verses 31 to 34 of Luke 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Welcome to Holy Week. They wouldn't see it right away, but in due time, they'll see it. And the invitation for you to see is laid before you this morning. Do you see it? Will you remove anything standing in the way this morning?
You can give it all to him. Why? This week will tell us. Because he first gave it up all for you. You see, he's leading his disciples up to Jerusalem. Where he will be raised up on the cross to redeem us from our sin. Where he will then be raised up from the grave to declare victory over death. And then he will be raised up to sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for those who put their faith in him. For those who know him, do you know him? Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that above all else, we would be affirmed and maybe awakened for the first time or strengthened in our resolve to follow you, to accept the invitation to come and follow you, Father, for you lead us to the cross. And we're going with you to see you high and lifted up, to pay for our sin to see you high and lifted up on the throne, raised to new life and sitting at the right hand of the Father. We see you. Father, give us the courage to respond in the way you've called us to. It's not about what we do. It's who we know. Give us the courage to repent and walk out of our old story and walk into the new story that you offer. Let it be all for your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand now as we respond in song before the Lord's Supper.